0: Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission.
1: Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts.
2: Welcome to the Historic Racing News radio show.
0: Hello. On this edition of the Historic Racing News Radio Show, we're going to talk about the luckiest drivers in the motorsport game. The uh, the team have put together a controversial list. I think it's fair to say. My name is Paul Tarsi, and I'm joined by the usual fantastic Historic Racing News Radio Show team. Uh. Paul Judge, um, up until recently, you were, you were laid low with the plague, but I, I trust you're all better now.
3: Yes, thank you very much. Um, yeah, it was, was, The family were sequentially laid down. We were like a quality gearbox and um, just went down <laughs> one by one with myself last in line, basically. So, uh, yeah, if you get the choice, wouldn't recommend it to anybody. But, uh, yeah, back in action now. Thank you very much.
0: Good, good. And did you, uh, did you use your time wisely when you were laid low?
3: I did what any sensible person would do and got caught up on my reading, to be quite honest. Oh, did you? So, so what, have, f- what have you read? Now, I, 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 think this is, there's, I think there's a few drivers out there who are race drivers that people should have heard of and haven't because they, they, they have a place in history. And uh, Piero Taruffi, Italian racing driver from the 1950s, but possibly the first man to actually write a book. Mm. The book was The Technique of Motor Racing. And it's, wow. it's quite. If you've got a book that the Ford is by Juan Manuel Fangio, you think, okay, this has probably got quite a lot going for it, really, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. But it, it is fascinating that you know, back in the he he'd actually stopped and had thought the whole way through the whole process. I have a copy. I have a copy, of I, I, have a copy of,
2: I have a copy of that book.
3: Didn't that Italian
2: guy Famari write a book first,
3: though? Oh,
0: Fiatro Famari, yes, yes, yeah. I thought he was the first. Yeah, smoking
2: yeah, hot, that was cool. Yes, that's what it was, it was, smoking hot, that's
3: right. You've been polishing up on that then, Paulie, have you? I have, actually, and then bizarrely, I then read, um, it was fun, Tony Rudd's biography, the gentleman who was with BRM and then Lotus, and Tarifi crops up in that, where <laughs> BRM were actually testing at Monza, and this is back in the days when you take three years developing a Formula 1 car, and yeah. the car was slow, and they weren't sure why it was slow, and Fruit, Tarifi actually taught them to split the car, the track up into sectors measure the wow. sectors, and work out where the car was slow. Really? Yeah. Wow. And, then, and you know, for, as Tony Rose said, it was like eye-opening for us. We just, and, you know, no one had really ever said that to them before. Wow. So, yeah, <laughs> Piero Tarufi, a true pioneer. I'll tell you something, though, guys, uh, on the Tarufi book,
1: it's, um, it, it's, there's no relevance to race driving technique these days um, because it's all about pitching the car into an oversteer slide even on the streets, yeah. you've, just, you've just got to keep the car in some sort of semblance of sliding across the track surface, and you know, setting the car up into a slide through curves and stuff. And you know that that iconic picture of Fangio through the sweeps at Rouen, with just that element of opposite lock. That's yeah. the kind of um, that's the kind of coaching, that's the kind of driver race driving advice that that comes out of the book greater raid as a period piece though i mean you know fabulous oh
3: completely it's it's you know it's power over traction isn't it yeah yeah very much as it, as it should be as, as, it should as be. we did back then yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah yeah now joe you've been um you've been in your uh, your other life in the world <laughs> of karting i've been
1: really busy um we've had a very busy calendar um we had the ultimate karting championship for a three day meeting which is a pretty big national karting Championship for all the major classes and then on the first weekend of November, Paul, um, which unfortunately for me clashed with the Walter Hayes Trophy at Silverstone, which I was really looking forward to and I know we'll talk about that in a minute because I'm dying to hear some tales from that, um, because I had a six-hour endurance kart race to commentate on. Uh, it was the, the the British Pro Kart Endurance Championship, which is an, a national series in their final round going into uh, finalising their championship um, and it was a you guys will appreciate this. It was a it was a sole commentary by me for oh. the six-hour race. Oh. So, I, so, however, however, um, my commentary box is right on the pit lane. So, I was able to have a wander about. I was able oh, to brilliant. talk to so- within the pit stops and the driver changes. And it was very, very, you know, endurance racing-esque. It was only on the PA at the track. But um, yeah. I had a great time. I had a, a, a great time. and And, of course... That's where my roots lie, isn't it? Endurance racing and commentary, commentating on, on long distance racing. And I remember seeing that one of the engineers whose driver was, um, was getting a bit of a panic on because he, he brought him in out of sequence or something. And, and so I was, com- I was chatting to them and, and the driver was kind of livid. And I said, Hey, calm down. Endurance races one on the pit wall. And the and the guy who was engineering them laptop all very professional turned to him and, and said, "See, see, I told you." Joe Bradley even says that,
0: <laughs> <laughs> so it must be true. So it must be true. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, well done. Well done. But yeah. Six hours on your own. I think that's uh, that's remarkable. That's uh, a great achievement to. And, uh, to and of, course, that. Paul,
1: the, of course, Paul. Of course, Paul. My local track. The next event I've got is not for a few weeks yet. And of course, um, we talked about it in the Rob Smedley interview that we did. Mm. Uh, we've got Rob Smedley's total carting visiting Warden Law as part of our um, race weekend. We're making it a two-day meeting for that for that reason. And uh, it's there's a rumour that people are going to win turkeys, but I'm not sure how true that is. But there's also. a world
0: shortage of turkeys,
1: is there? Well, we might have to do chickens or drumsticks. <laughs>
0: yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe um, chicken drumsticks or yeah, something like that.
2: Or oh, that yes. great American thing, a turducken.
0: Hey, eh? What's that?
2: It's a turkey stuffed with a duck stuffed with a chicken.
1: Oh, my oh. goodness, Jim. That's, <laughs>
2: I'm not kidding.
1: That's very Henry the Yates. Can we have a little uh, a quill
2: <gasps> inside the chicken <laughs> as well? Yes, there you go. <laughs>
0: yeah, I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. Yes,
2: yeah. that's, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's
0: how the song went. And uh, Jim, you've uh, you've been a busy boy as well. Um, yes, well, in,
2: in between uh, chasing around the country, covering college uh, football, soccer, uh, and uh, the beginning of the college basketball season here in America, I've been uh, watching Formula One races. Unlike Paul Jurd, however, when I get sick, I don't read books. I tend to catch up on old episodes of Charlie's Angels and things like that. <laughs> <laughs>
3: it's a
2: whole different conversation, I guess. So, so Jim,
3: uh, who, who's your
2: favorite? <laughs> I'll, never <tell. laughs> I'll never tell. I'll never tell. I'll actually give you the smart answer and Mr. say Betty. <laughs> <So.
0: laughs> she's obviously there then.
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, no, no. 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 I'm. I'm. I'm actually on the road in. Uh, in. In Connecticut doing uh back-to-back college tournaments. So it's uh, uh, getting. It's. It's what we call Feast Week here on uh, ESPN. So it's. Uh, it's a busy time busy time for everybody. I did uh sneak away though and and uh, uh catch some of the, the Qatar Grand Prix and it was great because it allowed me to catch up on my uh sleep that I've been losing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah, I mean the, the we've we've <laughs> we've gone from great racing to to uh, Toto Wolff and uh uh Oh, the
0: Christian holy well, uh
2: yeah. Spice's husband. Um uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, arguing, no. arguing about shit that nobody cares about. And yep. uh, yeah, I mean it's uh and the race the race was dull. Congratulations to Lewis. He drove the wheels off the car. Yep. Um, but good lord, you know, and and how long how long has it been since we've started a race without somebody having some sort of power unit grid thing blah oh, you know don't, don't, yeah. just you know can't we, have, can't
0: we have a race with you know where everybody lines up on the grid and drives as fast as they can
2: That's, Well, I, I, what they're proving is they need to do inverted grids yeah
0: yeah something because uh no i think
2: for me passing points that way uh that way the teams won't complain
0: yes they they need to do that thing they do in rallycross of of having the uh the the bit where they go off the track somewhere else for one lap out a joker yeah, lap ten joker exactly. yeah joker exactly.
2: lap yeah what's everybody's yeah. opinion of that circuit I everybody on the commentary seemed to you know um, it was. Well, it, it was it a boring circuit? Was it what? What's the uh, what's everybody's in this group's thought on on that circuit? They're talking about doing it downtown after World Cup, because yeah. because next year everybody will be sweating uh, during World Cup instead yes. of during. I, I I
1: I I thought it was a great track. I mean, obviously it's it's very modern. Um, with certain sections that um, was it triple apex. Sweeping right with um, yes, Apex, Apex, yeah. Apex flat out. Um, all right, flat out in current Formula One cars, but that you know, and, and just look at how many left front punctures we had, yeah. um, that really did take it out of that left front, didn't it? That the track, and there was some really, I mean, all right, it, you know, once you get through turn one, there's very little chance for overtaking, but I think there is still it was still challenging from. A driver's point, and I know I, t- I took Jensen Button's comments when he was um, ferrying one of the uh, presenters, one of the female presenters around, and he then described the track and uh, he said it was it, w- it was very challenging from a driver's perspective. Uh, I'm not sure it raced very well though, didn't it?
2: That it was- well, you know who really liked it is Fernando Alonso, oh, and that yeah. tells uh, me it's a driver's track. Yes, and that, and that's why some of the um i'll politely say less talented uh performers on the grid um yeah. didn't like it good point yeah. jim
0: yeah that, I think that says right. that says it all i think that's yeah the the fact that alonso liked it is is almost good enough it's for me it it was a great one lap track it wasn't a great race track uh that to see a driver going out there in quality or whatever was, was good because yes, it's challenging. It's Mm. daunting. It's all this. You can't race on it though. And and, uh, let's face it, the the most, the most famous Grand Prix track in the world is Monaco and you can't race on that. So mm, it's, um, it's one of those things, but uh, like Hungary, you can't race there. And I'd love to see, Something with a great big long straight and a tough braking area.
2: That's the next one, Yeah, that's the next one. Then they just use the pass flap. But I, I think the, I, I don't – and, again, this goes back. I'm not going to – I'm going to open the can of worms, but I'm just going to let them all run off. I'm not going to try and corral them because the, the cars are what's making it – you know, you, you've got to have enough room to be able to – Um, if you get too close, you're, you get in the turbulent wake and you lose all your downforce and all of a sudden you can't, you know, we're back to, we got to either simplify the wings or take the wings off or do something so that, so that the cars can function in the turbulence in a manner that will allow the drivers to use their skill to get by one another. Um, I'm not, I'm not a pass flap hater like some people are, but I tell you, without the pass flap, we'd be seeing yeah. a lot of parades. Yeah, you're right. You're yeah. right.
1: You're right. Um, I think they need to be shorter as well. They're, 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 I think they're about as long as an oil tanker, aren't they? They're about as long as the Torrey Canyon. Yeah. Uh, oh, the uh, cars? Uh, yeah, they've yeah, gotten them yeah,
2: you yeah. ridiculously long. Yeah.
0: They they have the same footprint as a Ford Transit now. Um, and- oh, much longer than that, Paul. Yeah,
1: well, that's what they say. Maybe a long know. wheelbase for transit. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe yeah, that. Yeah, yeah.
2: They're, yeah, they've got the wheelbase of a NASCAR stock car, for God's sake.
0: Yes, yeah, they have. Yeah, that says it all. Now, last time on the show, we talked about the uh, the worst racing cars of all time, and uh, <laughs> and if you remember, we had some some great comments there. Um, Paul, you came up with the the Techno and the Eiffel Land and the Scarab as being some of yours. James Finister got, got in touch with us and said, it's hard to disagree with that list apart from the BRM not being on it. Um, and we had the responses to the uh, the Copasucar and the BRM-powered Lotus and the Ferrari Ferrari, uh, T5 312 T5 that Jim made, and we had um, some some good comments, on, some very interesting comments on that. Um, Graham Harrison said, There are so many crap cars to choose from. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, he said that the PR, the BRM P207, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and the Andrea Motor, which we we talked about, spring to mind. That BRM P207,
1: the one that Larry Pertland's draw was that the 1976 car?
0: I, mm, yeah, yeah, and then and then, I think the, so, yeah,
1: Mike, Mike Wilds came into it, didn't he? Yeah, it had an extended life in the Aurora British Formula One Championship, you know, did it? Yeah, 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 that continued, that car continued to race now. Um, I,
2: well, now, wait I, a minute, wait this, a minute, this, this is, minute. In, this the is car, in my the head, never so raced, it, it drove us.
0: <laughs> yes. It, um, it Frank did. McLaughlin got in touch and said, uh, how about the token Formula One effort of 1974 mm-hmm. that achieved nothing despite having a couple of handy drivers? Token by name, token by nature. But it was the token when it was actually taken over by Tony Versapoulos and <laughs> Ken Grob, who were the joint owners and developers of the car, hence Toe Ken. But... Before that, it had actually been developed by Rondell Racing, and it would have been the first Rondell car if they hadn't actually have been unable to finance it, which is interesting in itself, I think. Yeah, very, very. Um, And Peter Snowden, of course, said the the Marquis and the Ferguson P99 and the Aston Martin DBR5 um, Phil Moss said, I don't think that you could say that the Ferguson was a bad car, sterling won at Alton Park in the Gold Cup in it, and I believe it was fairly competitive elsewhere. It was a bit outdated in terms of the engine placement, but it may have been right for four-wheel drive, as has been already said. It was also a testbed. Um, a couple of people agreeing with the DBR4 thing, Tim Cotton being one. Brian Morrison said, I seem to remember that the formula changed from 2.5 to 1.5 just as the Ferguson was coming good. And, and Snowy did did talk about that. Alan Collins, the Ferguson was basically a test machine. Uh, George Emery, the Scarab was far worse than the Ferguson. John Warren says at least they're having a go, which is an interesting point of view. <laughs> but um, some, some good stuff there. But also when we... Uh, When we ran that piece, I had a message from Tim Gray, who listeners to Midweek Motorsport will know only too well. And Tim said, oi, this is my specialist subject. So I thought it was worth having a chat to Tim. Welcome, Tim. And uh, many of our listeners will know you from the very successful podcast, Midweek Motorsport. But as soon as our last Historic Racing News radio show went out, You were straight on the phone to say that the worst single-seaters of all time was almost your specialist subject. How did that come about? Well, not necessarily the worst ones is my specialist subject, but certainly
4: single-seaters below Formula One level is my specialist subject. And if you're looking for the absolute worst single-seaters, just restricting yourself to Formula One is really narrowing the options. There are so many really terrible cars... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, at, at a much lower level. And just to pick three for this um, has been a real struggle. Um, so I I was very interested in listening to the last show, and you did come up with some terrible cards between you, but equally there were some cards that you think, well, that wasn't that terrible. I mean, the Scarab, for example, years behind its time, and if they'd built it in nineteen 19- fifty rather than nineteen fifty nine or whenever it mm. was uh, entered, then it would have been relatively successful, I think. And actually even after the Formula One debacle, when they dropped down to do sort of lower level single seat the following year, it had relative success until it was destroyed in a crash. Uh it got two top ten finishes at Goodwood, for example. That's that's yeah. no mean feat.
0: Yeah. So um, it's 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 not a bad car um when you look at it in a historic perspective it just was as you say right, right car wrong time.
4: So I've think I've narrowed it down to three cars which are truly terrible regardless of when
0: <laughs> they when and where they existed. Right, okay. That, that's, uh, it's, I am intrigued to know what this is because clearly you said that there's much more to it than Formula One and thank you for that because I think that's that's so important. Outside the current gamut, what's, uh, what's your favourite era of motorsport?
4: I think probably the 90s is uh, where I would like to be if I worked in motorsport in a particular era um, because certainly the early 90s, there was so much going on and so many little uh, companies producing uh, single-seaters and racing single-seaters. And it was just sort of the the end of the era before Formula 3 became everyone wants a Dallara.
0: Yes, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, you say about the the sort of the workshop mentality. I can remember because uh, I am a lot older than you are. That um, I was working for a transport company in Oxford in the early seventies, and uh, and I thought, mm, okay, there might be a bit of an opportunity to uh, to go and talk to March, uh, who were just starting out, and so I drove up to Bicester, which is about twenty miles, and. That I, I found their place in uh, in Murdoch Road, it was called, and walked in. Nobody on reception. It was just an industrial estate building. Nobody on reception. So I thought, oh, okay, fine. Well, I better come find somebody. So I walked in, um, walked into the workshop, and there were people sort of scurrying around doing stuff on – 701 formula one cars and and you know jackie stewart's car was in build and stuff and i walked up to the the offices which were on a mezzanine floor and walked in to an office the only office up there which was dave reeves who was uh, the team manager up there and uh, i said uh, excuse me um i was looking for somebody i can talk to about your transport needs and he said how the bloody hell did you get in here and it was all dead secret because they hadn't released the, the March 701 yet. <laughs> so, yeah, times change, don't they?
4: So they employed you as, as a receptionist to start with. <laughs>
0: <said>. <laughs> Didn't have the legs, mate. Didn't have the legs. Um, right. So come, come on then, Tim. Give us the first one out of the box.
4: Okay. So the first one um, is a car called the SF-01. This was designed to be uh, a level just below formula one in 2005 uh it had well let me tell you a story first 2004 uh i was following the european formula 3000 championship and their calendar uh concluded with a street race around caliuri in sardinia um and you think that's going to be a lovely place to go. Unfortunately, Callery's bin men went on strike and <laughs> rubbish was piling up in the streets and the city said, we're not going to let you have a race while there's rubbish piled up everywhere in our city. So they relocated the race. just like um, Double header as well uh, to end the season. Uh, so they decided that they'd uh, go to the Nürburgring On October the 31st, Um, not a great time to be at the Nervo Green. From the press room, I couldn't see the pit lane below me, certainly couldn't see the track, and any chance of seeing the other side of the track was uh, completely gone uh, because of the thick fog. (laughs) Um, They did eventually get some races in, uh, but Coincidentally, the Nürburgring that weekend, there was also a VLN uh, something happening on the Nordschleife only, and all those cars were filling up the paddock. But that weekend was the launch of the SF-01, uh, which was the car to be used for uh, what was uh, going to be this great new single-seater championship in 2005, Formula Superfund. Have you heard of Superfund?
2: Oh, yes.
0: I was thinking it was Super Formula, but it wasn't, was it? It was
4: Super no. Fund. Super Fund. Super Fund was an Austrian money laund- <coughs> investment fund. <laughs> um, uh, which the, the man behind it clearly had a lot of interest in motorsport because you saw the logo all over the Minardi's at the time. Um, although, if you look at Minardi's accounts, you'll see that they only ever got three quarters of a million euros out of him. So not... Right. not not a huge amount of money. Um, So anyway, this uh, car was being launched there with massive uh, hospitality available to the visiting journalists, of whom there were three, uh, as me, (laughs) as uh, Richard Rogers from Motorsport News and uh, Wolfgang Monserre, because he'll turn up to the opening of an envelope.
0: And just three of you?
4: Just the three, yeah, Um, and various uh, all the teams that were racing in European Formula 3000 obviously had been invited to the launch as well because they were people who you'd expect to want to race in this the following year. It was advertised as a low-cost, easy-maintenance, high-durability car, Uh, engine rebuilds every uh, 5,000 kilometers. The engine was a 4-litre V10 unit, um, the chassis was built uh, not far away from you paul uh, in littlehampton right. by uh, paul cherry's force 10 uh, organisation yeah um they clearly didn't have a truck so they borrowed a truck from arena motorsport uh, which is mike earl's uh touring car team same uh, part of the world very very just round the corner really yeah um so this uh, sf01 turned up in the arena truck uh, the arena truck then went back to the UK empty-handed uh, because it left in uh, a truck belonging to an Austrian team called Zeli Motorsport. And they okay. were running the test programme for the car. Um, so they did some test days in Spain. They did some test days in Portugal. Um, quite an extensive test programme. A load of drivers involved. Karl Wendlinger, um, Baz as people like that. Um, uh, and unfortunately, Patrick Lemarrier, uh, who had been a BAR test driver, mm-hmm. um, was uh, one of the people uh, who was able to do one of these test days in this car. And he crashed it. Right. Um, and as far as I'm aware, it was never seen again after that. They had announced a calendar, which started on The uh, Maybank holiday weekend at Bruneau, but that race was cancelled, and subsequently, all the other races uh, were cancelled. And they, at one point, they said there were 18 uh, drivers signed up, but they never released a list of who had signed up. And all the teams that had initially expressed interest suddenly cancelled their interest when the low cost aspect of this car. Um, wasn't as low cost as they thought because um, it worked out about half a million euros a season, right. which was cheaper than the newly launched GP2, but a lot more expensive than the Formula Renault V6 um, program, uh, which uh, was running at the same time and producing drivers like Robert Kubica. Yeah. So... Ultimately, it was a failure. Uh, Force 10 only ever made one car, uh, which is still in bits, probably somewhere in Austria.
0: Oh, right. So it possibly still exists. Uh, Bits of it certainly will exist. That would be an interesting one to find, wouldn't it?
4: Yes. Right. So that's the first one. The second one, I am going to choose a Formula One car. Uh
0: Um,
4: And I'm going to choose a Coloni C4. But first I need to explain something about its predecessor, the Coloni C3. Now, the Coloni C3 was a terrible Formula 1 car in its own right. <laughs> it was designed by Christian van der Plaine, supposed to compete in the 1989 Formula 1 season, but it missed the first five races because they hadn't built it. So eventually it serviced in Canada in the hands of Roberto Moreno, Pierre-Henri Raffanel, two reasonably good drivers. Yeah, Raffanel didn't get out of pre-qualifying in Canada, or indeed at the next four events, and then quit the team uh, and was replaced by Enrico Batagia, who failed to get out of pre-qualifying for the rest of the season. Moreno did slightly better. He actually qualified the car on three occasions, including that Canadian debut, which would be its best ever result. The gearbox failed nine laps from the end, and at the time, he was running ninth. Admittedly, out of nine cars, it was a very <laughs> high attrition race. Uh, it was wet, it was not at all how you imagine the canadian grand prix these days he, he subsequently managed two laps of uh, silverstone before the gearbox uh, gave way and 11 laps of esteril when the electrics failed not so the, follow, the following year moreno was gone christian van der Plain was gone they brought in a young gary anderson to uh, do an evolution of the car Unfortunately, any improvements that Gary Anderson made were negated by the fact that they'd signed a engine deal with Subaru. Now, the Subaru engine was 20 kilos heavier and 40 horsepower less than the Cosworth they'd been using the previous year. Uh, they had Bertrand Gachot behind the wheel. Now, Bertrand was a really um, exciting young talent. He'd won races in Formula 3000 or Formula 3. He was a British Formula Ford champion, a European Formula Ford champion Um, certainly France regarded him as the next big thing at the time Uh, but he never qualified the car in fact he only made it into qualifying in the second half of the season due to Onyx uh, withdrawing from Formula 1 which meant that it was a lot easier to get out of pre-qualifying so that was the same terrible car uh, a year later. So we move on to 1991 and the car that I actually want to talk about, the C4. This was an evolution of the C3C, the Gary Anderson variant, but Gary had now gone to Jordan. Bertrand Gasho had gone to Jordan. So who was the designer entrusted with making the Coloni C4 into perhaps not a winning car? That would be very ambitious, but at at least one that would qualify for races and be reliable enough to reach the end of most of them.
0: I have no idea. Tell me, Tim.
4: They gave it to a group of automotive engineering students from the University of Perugia.
0: Oh, right. Well, that makes sense.
4: And now the University of Perugia, founded in 1304, notes 12 popes and a Bond girl among its alumni. But no F1 aerodynamicists of the early 90s.
0: So, and, and, they, uh, and they were doing it from the from the ground up
4: I mean, they had the previous year's car to work on,, yeah. and were told we need to make an evolution of this we don't have a lot of money, and presumably they were just doing it as coursework and not getting paid yeah so the car turned up at the season opening u s Grand Prix, looking suspiciously like its predecessor, but with bigger side pods uh portuguese driver pedro chavez making his formula one debut crashed it in pre-qualifying didn't pre-qualify no surprise yeah. next three races he was seventh in two of the pre-qualifying sessions out of eight um and the top four five went through uh and uh gearbox failure in san marino meant he was plum last there so they decided that they'd change engine tuners uh And opted for the services of one Brian Hart. Now you think, this should make an improvement. Did not. Chavez was eight seconds slower than the next slowest car when he finished (laughs) last in pre-qualifying in Canada. He was last in pre-qualifying at Manicor and at Silverstone and at Hockenheim and at the Hungaro Ring and Estoril. Besides that, it was quite good. At Monza, the car didn't even start, never left the garage. And in Spain, Chavez eventually decided that he wasn't going to get into the car because he hadn't been paid for a while uh, and just walked off. So, Suzuka, they needed a new driver. And they chose Na- Naoki Hattori, uh, Japanese Formula Nippon champion, Um very successful young driver, yeah. put in a best time around Suzuka of two minutes, zero seconds, point zero three five. The only other driver who didn't pre qualify was Mark Blundell, and he did a 144.025. <laughs> so he's more than 16 seconds slower than the slowest other oh, car yeah. in pre qualifying. So wow. at that point, Enzo Coloni sold the team to an Italian cobbler for 10 billion lira, and the rest is history. Wow.
0: Wow. That Yeah, um, when it comes to bad cars, that's a tough one to beat, isn't it? I, I
4: mean, I think it is genuinely the worst Formula 1 car ever.
0: Yeah. I'm going to have to do some more research on this, I'll tell you, Tim.
4: What's your final one? The final one is... Is it a Formula One car? Is it not a Formula One car? A1GP was very successful for its first three seasons when it was running a Lola, which was purpose designed for them. And then they got a little bit too big for their boots and decided, if we had a Ferrari car, that would attract even more interest and even more sponsorship. So... Ferrari made them a variant of the 2004 Formula One car. Um, I can't find anywhere where it's listed with a uh, model number or chassis number or anything like that. So I'm just going to call it the 2004 Formula One uh, Ferrari Formula One car. Yeah. Um. And this did bring a little bit of extra interest into A1GP, particularly in Italy. Um, but not a lot. And it was hideously expensive, and Ferrari also controlled the engine and the gearbox, both of which everyone was leasing from Ferrari. And by the end of the season, cost spiralled out of control, and it killed the entire championship. Right. Um, so, in itself, it was a great car. It had won Formula One races uh, back in 2004. But what he did for that championship was terrible. Yeah,
0: that's interesting, isn't it? That uh, you have to question whether Ferrari would have actually built those cars because they don't have a, a volume production facility, so did they pass that out to somebody else anyway? Um, and nice little learner for them, very nice, absolutely. To yes, uh, uh,
4: while it lasted,
0: yeah, yeah. But if you if you kill the the series that you're running, then that doesn't work very well, does it? No, that's there are three really thought provoking choices there, Tim, and thank you for that. And uh, as you know, the the winner on the night was P- Paul Jurd's choice of uh, and I <laughs> I still battle with this, is it the Mackey, the Mackay, the McKee? But um I'll I'll stick with the the standard one of the of the marquee um which was the the japanese um, debacle that ended Howden ganley's career and because it was so badly put together and so so dangerous a design and uh i think any of these three is going to be up there what, what i'm going to do is i'm going to put these three up on the historic racing news facebook page with, uh, with a bit of an ex- explanation that you've given to me now and perhaps our listeners would like to go on there and have a look and make their comments because it would be interesting to see how many people agree with you but I think that's a, that's a great choice Tim and, uh, and thank you for it. Thank you very much Paul The Historic
3: Racing News Radio Show
0: Now one of the things that uh, that we look at in our corridors of power is to find things that probably we all sit and talk about in the pub but never get to to air to the to the great world and this time we're going to be talking about the luckiest drivers any formula anything you like but the luckiest drivers that you've ever come across because some people some people work incredibly hard to get where they are. The name that comes to mind immediately in that kind of context would be Nigel Mansell, who he was a real trier to get to where he wanted to be. And you know, like him or, I don't think anybody loathes him, but like him or not, there's, a, there's certainly the trier in Nigel. But some people have been very lucky in the breaks that they've got. And that what we're going to do is each of the three team members will be running through, and then I'm going to throw the floor open to all of them to tear each other apart and uh, to let us know what their thoughts are. So starting uh, at the top, the, uh, the first one, the first cab off the rank today. Jim, what are your three and why?
2: Well, my three are... Uh, one from Formula One and two from sports car racing. Now, this was a hard category for me because I don't consider, you know, race car drivers to be, to necessarily be lucky, except when they, you know, walk away from the ball of flame crumpled up at the side of the road. Then, then, then they're lucky. Uh, I think anybody that wins a race, uh, has had to had to earn it for certain parts. But um, fortune does favor the brave, and here are, uh, here are three, I think, that, that, that fit that bill. Uh, my first one is uh, Al Holbert from the 1983 24 Hours of Le Mans. Ooh. Um, Holbert joined the Porsche factory team for Le Mans in 1983 after uh, the Porsche 956 had swept the podium in uh, 1982, another three car team showed up at Lamar. Expectations, as you would expect, were high. Uh, and this time it became an intra squad battle between the pole sitting 956 of Jackie Ickes and Derek Bell and the number three Porsche factory entry for uh, Australian Vern Schuppen and Hurley Haywood and Al Holbert. Um, In the race, the upstarts uh, were well in hand in the final minutes. It looked like they were going to have an easy victory. But uh, earlier in the race, the car had had a blockage in the radiator, and that had caused some problems with the engine, and 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 the overheating was a residual problem that kept occurring. I think that ultimately what happened was the blockage to the radiator actually damaged some of the radiator. Um, and that caused Holbert to have to slow the, the pace. Now, Holbert was um, renowned for his ability to be sympathetic with a car that was, you know, maybe missing a gear or had, had some trouble. So it was a good man to have in the car for the, the finish of the race uh, because of his sympathy for the machinery. And he was trying to nurse home the car with Derek Bell on a charge. And Bell had unlapped himself, uh, going into the very final stages of the race. And on the very last lap, what would have been the last lap, Holbert, um, the, the the engine seized, and Holbert had to stop on the racetrack. He was able somehow to get the engine going again, and he he literally limped home. And Derek Bell crossed the checkered flag just seventeen seconds behind him. So um 17 seconds uh is when when you've had to suffer probably about a 6 or 7 minute lap um yeah. because of the problems that's just that was uh that was that was luck that he was able to get that car restarted and 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 claim victory
0: okay. um, that's a good one
2: yeah um my second one comes from the world of formula 1 Uh, His name is Olivier Penny, and in 1996, he claimed his only victory in a Formula One car, and it was at Monaco. Uh, The weather that year was the the big equalizer at at the track. It's notoriously difficult to pass on. As Paul said earlier, it's it's very difficult to race uh, at Monaco. That's why qualifying is so important. Uh, in qualifying Michael Schumacher was uh, the fastest and was certainly the odds on favorite to to win the race he was at the height of his prowess with Ferrari at the time but after the morning warm up and this was this was as I did I remembered uh, I remembered it being uh, what everybody considered a lucky win and when I went back and, and really did the research and dug into this event i was I was stunned at this fact that, that i that I dug up that after the morning warm-up they had a torrential downpour that soaked the circuit, so officials decided we'll do another warm-up in the rain so everybody can get used to it. So they did a 15-minute warm-up, delayed the start of the race. Can you imagine this happening now? Delayed the start of the race and let everybody have an extra warm-up. Now some teams didn't, and six drivers went off during that session. So of the. 20 or so cars that were to start the race, six of them started the race with, a fair, a you know, with some, day, not fully 100%, because they, they'd gone off during the extra warm-up session. So the race started an hour late. Uh, first lap incidents claimed Schumacher, Rubens Barrichello, two Minardis, and Jules Verstappen. By lap five, there were only 13 cars remaining. Uh, Damon Hill had beaten Schumacher to turn one, and he led for the first 40 laps and then blew the engine on his Williams-Renault. And that was the first DNF of the season for Damon. Then John Alacy took the lead uh, in his Benetton-Renault until suspension failure, and that handed over the lead to Penny. Now, he had, uh, Olivier Penny had started 14th. But he was comfortable in those changing conditions because he had gone out in that second warm warm-up session and was fastest in the session. So this is where I come that, you know, it's the, yes, it's, you're lucky, but, uh, there, there is some, something to it. Well, putting a lot of pressure on Penny were Jacques Villeneuve and the other Williams, Eddie Irvine in the second Ferrari, David Coulthard in the McLaren Mercedes, and finish stars Mika Hakkinen in, in in the Mercedes uh, McLaren and Mika Salo in the Yamaha powered Terrell, who, who remember, speaking of bad cars, um, ooh, and, ooh. Yeah, uh, those guys were all benefiting from the, from the early attrition. Near the end of the race, it got even more wild than it was at the beginning of the race because first Luca Badawar took out Villeneuve, so there's one challenger gone. Then Erdi Irvine made a mistake and spun at Maribo, and when he came back out onto the racetrack, he took out Salo and Hakkinen. So that takes those two out of the race. And that meant there are only four cars still circulating when the two-hour time limit arrived. Penny finished four seconds ahead of Coulthard, who was in jo- closing in Johnny Herbert. And Heinz-Harald Freitzen, who was running last, decided he didn't need to finish, so he retired on the last lap. So only three guys finished, and they were on the podium. And Olivier Penny, there's a famous, uh, famous picture, and actually there's a 143rd scale model that you can get of uh, Penny and his uh, uh, Ligier driving around with the, with the French flag, and it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty cool thing. Um, I haven't had one, um, <laughs> so Olivier Penny is my second. Well, that's
0: but, uh, that, that's one that's one from uh, from left field, as I think. Yeah, yeah, and, and
2: and my last one, um, Joe Bradley will remember this one, I am sure, and that would be um, the boys at Panos uh, in nineteen ninety nine. That would be the likes of uh, David Brabham. Eric Bernard, and I think it was um, Johnny O'Connell. I'll have to double-check that.
0: Was it? Um, was it
2: Wallace? Yes, it was Andy Wallace. Andy Wallachie, the famous Italian racer. <laughs> uh, at Petit Le Mans, uh, the uh, 10 hours or 1,000 miles back then, whichever came first, and then the closing stages with the four laps to go, the BMW number 42 with JJ Leto, Tom Christensen, and Jorg Muller behind the wheel of that car were leading by 40 seconds. Basically, had the thing in the bag. And I can remember Bill Adam because we did the television for that show talking at the time. And if you go on YouTube, you can, you, there, there are clips of it where he talked about the. BMW pressing a little bit harder than they need to in the closing stages of the race. Uh, Eric Bernard was in the, was in the Panos and Muller was in the number 42 BMW and with less than four laps to go, it was, they were coming up on the three laps to go, uh, coming down the hill, uh, into the left, right, the new chicane that, that had been added when Don Panos took over, Road Atlanta, uh, Muller threw it into the uh, gravel trap, and it cost them the race, handing the win to uh, Brabham, Bernard, and Wallace. And J.J. Leto, in probably one of the, the least classy things I've ever seen anybody done ref- do, refused to go to the podium and left poor Muller standing there by himself because um, mm-hmm. it was it was just – I'm mistaken on that. Christensen was with them at C-ring. He was not with them at uh, – At Petit, it was just Mueller and and Leto. And Leto left his partner standing there by himself on the podium while the uh, Brabham, uh, Wallace, and Bernard team celebrated their victory uh, when they led the last two laps of the race. And it was a stunning victory. And most importantly, what it did was it opened the door for Panos to defeat the BMW Motorsport team for the LMP teams and manufacturers standings that year by two points at the end of the season, 149 to 147. So that was a huge, huge deal and uh, a lucky break for the folks at Penos So those are my three, and I would probably nominate that one as the most lucky because the uh, the BMW had it in the bag. They, they ended up winning four races throughout the season. They were they were the dominant car to beat in 1999. And it was thrown that away is, on the last lap.
0: That is fascinating, week. Jim. Thank you. Because uh, I think you know, one of the great things about these slightly different sorts of, of uh, topics is that we all can remind each other of things that probably at our age we'd forgotten. And that certainly was one that, had slipped through my my memory but yeah thank you for that that's that's absolutely great uh, paul jerd you've uh, you've got your three so kick us off with your first one
3: well actually i'm, I'm just gonna back up exactly i think with what jim said at the start and that i found this topic one of the hardest to research and actually decide what to talk about because you know quite often one person's luck is another's preparation of foresight and uh, I think it was the the famous South African golfer Gary Player who was quoted as saying, "The more I practice, the luckier I get."
2: Yeah, yeah, it's exactly right.
3: Yeah, and we all have examples, of, you know. So I've I've come up with examples of person, an example of personal luck, a race won by just legally surviving a race of attrition attrition, then someone who was ready when a lucky break came their way. So I'm, I'm going to start off with with a uh, pretty obvious one, and uh, we're going to talk about Peter Dumbreck. Now uh, Le Mans in 1998 had not been a great one for Mercedes-Benz, with uh, all three all three CLK LMs out after two hours. And uh, when the rules changed at the end of that year, banning the exotic GT1 spec cars, Mercedes took the opportunity to totally overhaul their car. They kept the bottom of the monocoque, the en- made some engine changes, and in response to a specific new rule, revised the upper cockpit area to conform with new loading tests. So, essentially, the car had evolved from a GT to a prototype with a shorter wheelbase than its class rivals and longer front and rear overhangs, and and became the CLR. Now, these cars were aimed solely at success at Le Mans. They didn't even race before the 24 hours, but started a testing program in California that February before moving on to Homestead in Florida, then a 30-hour session at Manicor. So when the team arrived at Le Mans, they had already done 21,000 miles of testing. And, yeah, well, I think the story of that race week is actually pretty well known. On Thursday, Mark Webber in car number four pulled out from behind, behind a GT on the brow on that run from Mulzan down to Indianapolis, only for the nose of the CLR to lift and keep rising, and the car landed on its side, went back on its wheels and slithered into the battery, into the barriers. And uh, it became obvious that this was not a freak one-off issue when on his outlap on Saturday morning's warm-up, Webber was following another CLR and uh, one of the BMWs that I think Jim just mentioned. Uh, When the car again lifted over a brow on the run to Mulsanne Corner, this time going end over end and coming to a stop, having slid along on that strengthened roof and up to the Mulsanne Corner escape road. Now, Mercedes knew they had big problems. And while debating whether to race or not, they were already fitting extra vanes to the car that were part of its wet weather setup. And the pressure on Norbert Haug, the director of Mercedes-Benz Motorsport, must have been immense. But he was outranked at the circuit by a bevy of senior Mercedes-Benz executives and uh, acting on input from AMG engineering team and the drivers they elected to race the two remaining cars and and things went well early on. Ben Schneider was leading after the first round of fuel stops but it was the other car that caught the attention of the world. Christophe Boucher started the number five CLR before handing it over to Nick Heidfeld and it was running third when Peter Dunbrecht climbed aboard for his first stint. He had contact with the GT2 Porsche at the Ford Chicane on just his second lap but was closing on the second place Toyota and was right with it two laps later, when the cars again hit that brow going down towards Indianapolis. For the third time in just a few days, that Mercedes went airborne, and this time tumbled through the air and into the trees to the outside of the circuit, and out of sight of the TV cameras. Now, yeah, we're discussing luck, and the car came down in a clearing from where the trees had been cleared just two weeks previously, went clean over a marshalling post, landed down onto its wheels, and it came to a stop, no, a, a branch impacted the monocoque went into the cockpit and still missed D'Arbrecht. Now, you know, the, the TV footage of the car disappearing off-sites was scary enough. And, uh, gents, now, Joe, I know you were actually at Le Mans that year. I can only assume the relief became palpable when it was obvious that Peter actually was out the car and had escaped any serious injury.
1: The car looked like a scale-extric car going off and hitting the sofa. Um, it just looked like a toy car going off into the trees, and it was shocking. And I distinctly remember where I was at that very exact moment because, and I'm going to name drop here, It was in, um, it, I was in the catering tent, <laughs> no surprises there, <laughs> where we were being catered and I, I was uh, obviously on a break um, and it was a Saturday evening, wasn't it? I was sat with Melanie Bell, Derek Bell's daughter, um, and Melanie Bell's mother, um, Derek Bell's uh, ex-wife. And we were having some dinner and on the screen. And it, amazingly, the TV was actually following the car as it or it went. It, it picked it up pretty quickly. And there were the pictures of this car just barrel rolling like a toy car into the trees. And it was like immediately the reaction was, oh, my God, nobody is coming, is walking away from that. Nobody. And there was shock, consternation, worry people came into the into the into the awning to see the TV and then the pictures filtered through of Dunbreck walking away and it was like, oh my god, there was people crying, there was people who obviously knew Dunbreck very well. It was it was shocking. I tell you what was what was even more shocking though, was the fact that Mercedes even ran after the Weber incidents, yeah, there was we we weren't allowed anywhere near, and I, and I, I remember I had a coffee with Mark on probably Thursday morning before he flipped the car, and I knew Mark quite relatively well as you do from paddocks. He'd been through Formula Four and Formula Three, and and you get to know people enough to say, hey, you know, fancy a coffee, have a sit down, and when whenever you're in a paddock and. The moment the Weber incident happened, that was it. Mercedes just shut off any comms with any kind of media. And then subsequent I mean, this this, wasn't avail- this, this information wasn't available immediately at the track, but be, it's, I can't remember when this broke, but apparently, the drivers were told to they were going to race. Um, They weren't quite sure how the incident happened, and it was pretty straightforward for for anybody who was watching. It was basically the car became aerodynamically unstable behind other cars. So the drivers were instructed to ensure, make sure you are not in the wake of a car in front of you as you go over the rise at Mulzan and you go over those two rises at Indianapolis, which is where Dumbreck's accident happened. And if you look at the footage, Dumbrake is in the wake of a car. And to have instructed the drivers to, right, we're going to race. However, guys, as well as driving the car and as well as driving the car for, you know, three hour stints, etc., please remember not to be in the wake of a, of a car you're following at these various points on the track. That, that was the most shocking thing. The fact that Mercedes chose to, um, you know what, Paul, your choice was, Um, Peter Dunbrecht being the luckiest uh, driver. I think Mercedes were the luckiest team. Remember, they hadn't hadn't been back to motorsport for such a long time at that level, um, having pulled out in 55 because of an accident at Le Mans. And here they are back at Le Mans, and this sort of thing happens. They were
3: very lucky. They were very lucky that they didn't kill that driver. Good, good point, actually, Joe. There's more. I said I wasn't at the mall that year, but I should have been, because I was actually working for a motorsport PR agency based in Newmarket, and we were doing Peter's personal PR. Oh, I was I was working at BTC meetings in Formula Three that year, and my race days would quite often start with an early morning phone call to Japan to get Peter up get quotes from Peter after he'd raced because he was 98 Japanese Formula Three champion, and then in 99 was racing in Formula Nippon write the press release and I could get it out before the main action of the day had actually started. I actually even wrote his preview press release before Le Mans. I was trying to find a copy but unfortunately I couldn't. And it was titled something like, you know, generic big weekend ahead for Dumbreck or something like that. (laughs) But I was moving house that weekend so I couldn't go to France. So late on the Saturday evening, like any normal person in a house full of boxes, I connected up my computer to get online log into the autosport website to see what was happening at the mall and once the dial-up modem had finished it whistles and clicks i was just confronted with the headline dumbrek horror crash i read on to find that peter was as okay as you can be after that and when he was back in the uk we we, we, he was a star we we pushed him like mad to be quite honest amazing considering what he'd just been through we had him on the bbc early on the monday on john Inverdale's chat program at 7 7 7 p.m on bbc one we got him in everywhere and every opportunity he thanked mercedes for building him such a strong car (laughs) followed the company line and um well yeah he was rewarded with three years of dtm for them for the next three seasons but yeah i think a huge example of luck and for me you know one that strikes very very close to home
0: that's a that's an interesting insight paul and uh thank you thank you for that um Um, so peter dunbrack
3: right the the, one My next one actually is all about the San Marino Grand Prix. And I'm going to leave who the lucky person is right to the end. We'll see if you can work it out as we're going along. And in 1985, San Marino was the third race in the Formula One schedule. And this was deep into the turbo era of Formula One. And um, all the teams knew that San Marino Grand Prix at Imola was going to be a bit of a challenge because uh, simple maths told them that they're allowed 220 litres of fuel. And that wasn't going to get them through the full 300 kilometres on full power. So practice on the Friday and the Saturday was devoted to trying to find a balance between fuel flow, turbo, turbo boost, and a decent lap time. And, uh, you know, an, an efficient engine could be delivering them 800 brake horsepower over the race, while one forced to run a lower boost could be right down to 450, and uh, totally not at the races. So uh, while everyone was carrying out the same tests on the car, there was also much secrecy about what team thought they could run with. And uh, if Friday's qualifying, and uh, remember the days of qualifying on Friday and Saturday? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. pole change position between Edson Senna's and the Lotus, Keki Rosberg in the Williams, the Ferrari of Michele Alboreto and McLaren's Alan Prost. And uh, Senna came out on top and then held that position through Saturday's hour-long session with Rosberg alongside him on the front row. And uh, Elio Diangelis Angelis made it two Lotuses in the top three with uh, Alboreto the quickest Ferrari and our, uh, our favourite well-cuffed race driver, Thierry Bootson, a five-fifth <laughs> on the Arrows. <laughs> <laughs> That made me so happy. Um, So in the 60-lap race, Senna led all the way, had to hold off Prost on about lap 40 from a concerted attack, but then Prost slipped back as he was driving to a very strict fuel figure. And to the delight of the large Italian crowd, the Frenchman was passed by the flying Ferrari of Staffan Johansson on lap 53. So uh, while Prost was being all professional about things, the Lotus and Ferrari drivers appeared to have been pretty much had their tanks maxed out and just told to go for it. And uh, if the crowd had got excited about Johansson moving into second, they moved close to hyperventilation and having been led to a darkened room. When Ascena was close to competing his 57th lap, the Lotus coughed and slowed. And despite the Brazilian weaving the car around in the vain hope to pick up any last fuel, he was out of luck and out of gas. Now, my dear old mum always insisted that you can have too much of a good thing. And that proved correct for the excited Tifosi as just halfway around the next lap, the lead Ferrari rolled to a silent halt. Also out of fuel. Amongst all of this, almost unnoticed was PK running out of fuel, Brundle in the Tyrrell, Derek Warwick in the Renault, and that left Prost to run off just the two remaining laps on minimal boat boost and take the checkered flag from DeAngelis and uh, and from our friend Bootson. But uh, it is not Alan Prost who is our Mr Lucky of this story. So his McLaren ran out of fuel on the slow down lap, so finally judged and really was driving to a fair figure. And uh, so it was the last car back to Park Fermi for the weight checks, long after Prost stood still on the top step of the podium, given all the interviews. And uh, when they finally weighed the McLaren, it was two kilos light on a sc- set of scales con- configured to give a two kilo benefit in doubt in favour of the car. 540 kilos was the target, and the MP4 was 538 kilos. And uh, while getting some... <laughs> Well, the the reference I looked up said good-natured abuse from other team managers. (laughs) Just (laughs) like today. Yeah, I don't think how Ron – yeah, how times have changed. I don't think how Ron Dennis probably saw it like that. So Ron Dennis insisted on a second set of scales being found, and he insisted on watching them being properly zeroed in before the car was Mm -hmm. weighed again. And uh, this all took some time, and this time the car weighed 536 kilos because remember remember that (laughs) two-kilo tolerance. (laughs) So even Ron Dennis realised at this point he had no point to argue. And uh, more than two hours later, a revised result was issued, well after most of the assembled press had reported on what they thought was Prost's second win of the year. So who was our Mr. Lucky? Well, it was the G Angelis, of course, for walking that tightrope between pace and fuel consumption, controlling his right foot and uh, taking just one of two wins in a career that was to be tragically cut short the next season.
0: Wow. That's, a, that's an excellent one, Paul. And uh, no, I, I didn't know where you were going with that. I've, I was not mm. sure. I was, I was racking my brains in terms of who
3: was that person who, who got the win. So well done for that. And, uh, and your third one, please. Well, following the theme developed by Jim, I've gone for one Formula One and two Le Mans. There is something about Le Mans. But I'm hoping that this is, this is a bit of a story that most people don't actually know about Le Mans. And uh, I think all of us talking, you know, have great links for the uh, French classic. And I suspect many of our listeners also do as well with uh, a great level of knowledge and love for the French race. Now, uh, I'm happy to put my hand up and said, you know, I've had the odd fantasy about driving there, particularly in the Group C days when gentlemen drivers were still a thing. And uh, I think any spectator would dream of being plucked out the crowd by a team saying, come drive for us. (laughs) So listen carefully while I tell you a tale of someone that this actually happens to. And uh, I vaguely, vaguely remembered the story, and I actually got in touch with the driver in question just to make sure I had actually got this correct. But uh, an odd, oddity of Le Mans in the late 1980s was uh, Mazda competing in the uh, IMSA GTP class, purely because it was actually only themselves and their cars in that class, so uh, you know, they only had themselves to beat. They brought three cars to Le Mans in 1989, a, a 767 as they'd raced the year before, and two of the revised 767s B, which proved to be 14 seconds a lap quicker than last year's efforts. And uh, two of the cars were in that distinctive orange and green charge livery that became so famous when they run the race a couple of years later. And uh, one of the 7.6Bs was the blue and white livery. Now, early in the week, one of the drivers of the car, Yoshima Katayama, was taken ill, leaving David Kennedy and Pierre Doudonnet alone as a a driver pairing. So, at scrutineering at the Place du Jacobin early in the week, David Kennedy looked up and saw a familiar face in the crowd. And after a quick word with the Mazda management said, uh, Chris, have you got your helmet and overalls with you? And uh, a quick pause here just to make sure, make it clear that this was a spectator with actually some race pedigree. Double touring, British touring car champion, Chris Hodgetts, who'd also made his Le Mans debut the season before in a Charles IV Porsche-powered Tiger and came second, came third in the C2 category. And uh, I did actually ask Chris about why did he have his race kit and helmet with him? And he said he always had it with him, just <laughs> in case. So literally, he leapt the fence, was scrutineered along with the car. Although within 24 hours, Mazda had sorted in with two brand new stand 21 race suits in official Mazda colours and two new crash helmets in his colours and with Mazda logos. And uh, yeah, but they, everything went fairly straightforward. Dutoné went off briefly in qualifying, but the car was easily repaired. And after that, the race was hugely uneventful. There were only non-scheduled stop being for a quickly su- replaced suspension wishbone. The trio won IMSA GTP, also claimed seventh overall just 24 laps down on the winning Mercedes. And uh, his newly found Japanese connections led Chris to racing a Sierra Cosworth RS500 in Japan whenever David Kennedy couldn't make it. And uh, really just proves that the Boy Scouts have been right all along with their motto be <laughs> prepared. You know, it really was a Lamore <laughs> dream come true from spectator to race seat to podium in a few days. And wow. uh, I think Jim did this as well. But I just came across this fantastic piece of trivia while researching this. So, very, very quickly, gents. Who were the only three marks to contest every Le Mans race in the 1980s? Porsche. Ooh. Porsche, yep. Yep. Um,
0: every Le Mans race in the 1980s.
3: There's a clue in my story.
0: Yep, Mazda.
3: Porsche, Mazda, and... Lola. I'm going to put you out your misery. WM.
0: Oh, oh, ho, ho, ho. Of course. Yeah. Excellent question. Excellent yeah. Well done, Paul. That's uh, that's good. So Chris Hodgetts, Peter Dunbrecht and Elio DeAngelis. Angelis, and you, you've uh, you've developed a reputation over the years for or over the months for coming up with left field stuff. But actually, I've uh, I've kept Joe Bradley until last because his choice. I've uh, we had a chat the other day, and I know what his choice is, <laughs> and this is going to rock his socks boys so uh, joe what are you going to start with so we've got
1: three choices haven't got 3 choices have three and so one of my choices has three drivers involved yep, that's, that's come, that's yeah, yeah 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 so i'm going to come to that later um so can you remember the 1964 formula one world championship um and you remember who won the world championship yep yep john surtees yep. in a ferrari right he only won by one point from Graham Hill. Do we remember that? I, I, I do. I, I, I mean, certainly my age—I was only two years old in 1964. So, um, I, I, little things like that, you kind of—I have to be reminded of. But if we look even deeper into that season of Formula One, John Surtees was so so lucky. He'd won. He'd won. He won two Grand Prix, He won at the Nürburgring, the German Grand Prix, and then he won the Italian Grand Prix at Monza. And then, bizarrely, Ferrari withdrew. They withdrew and flung their competition license back at the FIA. They didn't want to be part of Formula One. And they were on on course, having won two Grand Prix to win the World Championship, although they were in contention. Bizarre. He was third in the World Championship at that point. And the other drivers in in contention going into the final two races, which was the uh, the US Grand Prix at the Glen and the Mexican Grand Prix, um, Graham Hill and uh, Jim Clark, Uh, Graham Hill in the BRM, Jim Clark in the Lotus. So Graham Hill wins the US Grand Prix, and they they go into Mexico, and Surtees finds himself in a blue and white. Ferrari entered by Luigi Cinetti's North America racing team, the NART racing team. And he can still win the driver's championship, but in a different car. Still a Ferrari, but a different Ferrari. And it was down to Cinetti who put that deal together with John Surtees to keep him in in the game, so to speak. Um, Would you believe that both Hill and... Uh, Clark were eliminated in the final race. Guess what? Graham Hill was taken out by Lorenzo Bandini driving
0: Uh.
1: a a Ferrari. (laughs) Now, Graham Hill has never, ever accused Bandini of doing it deliberately. And you know what, guys? I actually believe that because this is 1964. This is not Verstappen driving Hamilton off the track in Sao Paulo they didn't do that in those days, you know. What? Or Hamilton driving
2: Verstappen off the track somewhere else? Come on! <laughs> hey,
1: whatever. Um, it they didn't do that in 1964 because people died driving yeah. Formula One racing cars, and they had res- the utmost respect. So it was here, clearly here. an accident that Bandini took Graham Hill off. Uh, Jim Clark's engine failed on the. Guess what? Have a guess what? On the last lap, Jim Clark was second and in view of the title. He was about to win the World Championship. And on the last lap, his engine failed. And that allowed Surtees to come through. And he didn't win the race, but he scored enough points to take the championship by a point. I mean, how sporty can you be? Wow. You've, you, that, that's, that, so that's my first contender. It's, um, it's John Surtees winning the World Championship 1964 by a point, by dint of Graham Hill being taken off by his teammate, a little bit suspect there, and, of course, um, a suspect country climax engine in the back of uh, Jim Clark's Lotus. My second choice, and Jim's going to love this one, Um. Lewis Hamilton.
2: <laughs> here, hear.
1: Um, look, I, this is not if, in any way criticizing Lewis Hamilton as arguably one of the greatest drivers that we've seen. Um, I was absolutely in awe of his driver in Brazil. I loved how he kept his composure, and I thought justice was done. Let's not get into that. This is not what it's about, Jim.
2: Nope. Um, oh, I oh, I um, no, I, yeah. I agree with you a hundred percent on on Brazil. Yeah. Um, I, I would I would factor in, however, that Mercedes has made some really good changes to the car, but that was all down to him and him keeping his cool. You're absolutely correct. But yeah.
1: Un- unbelievable. And and we've seen plenty of sublime drives by Lewis Hamilton. He's undoubtedly a very, very talented race driver. Where the element of luck comes in is that in 2013, can you remember in 2013 when the news broke that Hamilton was leaving McLaren and he was going to Mercedes? And Mercedes wasn't the juggernaut it is now. Remember, they'd had those years with Michael Schumacher and Nico Rosberg, and the car was kind of... However, I... I, I was saying to people, you wait, he's, he's been, before he made that decision to go to Mercedes, Mercedes have obviously courted him and they've gone, come and have a look at what we've got for next year. The 20, 2014 was the first year of the hybrid power unit regulations. Come and have a look at what we've got. See this, this is, gonna, this is unbeatable. And he's in no doubt moved to Mercedes and oh my goodness, what a decision that was mm. because since 2014, Mercedes have won every single world championship. And it was only 2016 that Hamilton didn't win the world championship and that was down to Rosberg. All right, this one's wide open, but you know what? I, I think Mercedes, again, that is a very, very difficult car. The element of look um, and the reason why I've chosen Lewis Hamilton is the is the look of being in such a dominant car and engine and set of regulations and how those planets have aligned since 2014 to give us this period of domination that uh, superseded the schumacher ferrari years i could board with formula one in the early 2000s even though each each season it it you know there was some tight seasons there in those early 2000s but You know, if you look at the table, Schumacher, 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 Schumacher. If you look, you know, 2014, Hamilton, Hamilton, Rosberg, Hamilton, 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 you know, it's like yawn. That, you know, that's the element of luck and that's what I want to put forward Lewis Hamilton has been the luckiest driver. Talented. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about being look, All right, you could say he's in the lucky sperm club. You know, um, <laughs> it, it, you know, and, and how we was—that's was, a
2: whole different conversation. It, it
1: absolutely is. And 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 you know how he was how he was earmarked and picked up by Ron Dennis very early on in his karting yeah. days, and and Martin Hines from Zipkarts could they, they saw talent in the kid. And, you know, he, he's been brought through edit into Formula One to be the, the you know the, arguably one of the, the greatest drivers. It's just this element of domination we've seen from 2014. He's been so – the planets have aligned for him, and that's the element of luck is what I'm uh, I'm putting forward as my choice. Um, third one? Third one. Right. Can everybody remember the 2016 uh, 24 Hours of Le Mans? Because my nomination for the luckiest – Three drivers, let's say, is Mark Lee, Brumman, Dumas, Neil Jani, the number two Porsche. Um, 2016 was when we saw the infamous finish to the race, where the number five Toyota, Anthony Davidson, Sebastian Buemi, Kaz Nakajima were leading by a minute, by a minute. Now, my job for Radio Le Mans, um, it was, I was lucky enough to be in at the end. And when you're in at the end of the race, you have to um, your job at the end of the race is to get the winning team interview. And uh, it was just so it was just I I was lucky in 2016 because it was my job to get the overall winner.
2: You you were on the naughty step that year?
1: No, I wasn't. I was I was um, I was down in the Toyota Gazoo Racing pit. The number five at a minute's lead, and there was two laps to go. And then crossing the line as the as sorry as the car came out of the Fort Chicane to, to go on to its final lap of the race, the car petered out and slowed and stopped directly in front of the Toyota Pit Garage. However, track side. It was incredible. It was like what? What, what, was, what is happening? Now, I was in the Toyota garage, and all of those Toyota personnel, um, Hugh Deshawnak was there, and I kind of knew Mr. Deshawnak quite well from the American Le Mans series, and we would have a coffee and a chat, and, and I'm just looking at him, and he's looking at me, and he's looking at the TV screen, and it's like, oh, my God, you know, what, what is happening? What is happening? There was, like, this feeling of disbelief that the car was now stopped on track. And obviously the chief engineer was heavily on the comms too, and it was still in the days when the, 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 the engineers on the pit wall rather than in the pit garage. Um, I immediately sort of woke up to what my responsibilities were and darted out of the Toyota pit and ran down to Porsche, uh, which was kind of in the middle of the pit lane. And as I got to the Porsche pit, I walked in as the number two Porsche. It was uh, Neil Jarny at the wheel of the car at the time. And he overtook the Toyota as it sat there. The Toyota there eventually did a reset and, and tootled around on kind of a, um, a safety mode um, and, and ended up being not classified because of its final lap time was too slow. Um, so in the Porsche pit there is consternation. There's there's people jumping up and down. There's now would Andrea Seidel have been the team boss in 2016? Because I can't remember if it was Andrea Seidel who would have been there in 2016. All I remember is one of the big one of the big bosses in the Porsche pit was shouting, Stop this, stop, stop, stop. Have some dignity, have some dignity. He was not wanting to celebrate the pure bad luck and demise of their competitor, who he knew, you know, a one minute lead going into the final lap. He knew they'd been beaten up mm-hmm. until that point. And there was, a, there was a, I remember a guy bringing a box of T shirts from out the back, and the T shirts were 2016 Le Mans 24 Hour winners. And he started throwing them out for the, for the crew to wear. And they were, you know, this guy was like, stop, stop, put that away, put that away. And it was kind of a subdued celebration, which I thought was was really respectful, really sportsmanlike. They, they weren't going to celebrate massively. Yes, they were happy. LeBron's all about finishing, after all. And, you know, that's part of the endurance racing game, isn't it? It's all about to finish first. First, you have to finish. And so there is, you know, they did the job. They did the job right. Their car held together to the very end, whereas the Toyota didn't. But just to end on that, I mean, that, that's the lucky part. The lucky part is the Porsche team took that win um, after the problems with Toyota. We were beginning to think, is Toyota ever going to win this race? I then went when grabbed the winning interview. Forget, I, I have no idea who it was. It was possibly Mark Leeb. Um, it was possibly one of the uh, the team bosses. I, I literally can't remember. Um, but then I then I went down to Toyota, and you can imagine the, the mood and the atmosphere in that garage. And I remember seeing something. Um, I look at Hugh Shona. And I I point at the microphone and he nods affirmatively. And so I I shout in to, um, on TalkBack, you know, I can get it. I can get Hugh Deshawnack. And um, I walked up to Hugh Deshawnack and his eyes are watering. And I say to him, Mr. Deshawnack, I never called him Hugh. He was always Mr. Deshawnack. It's Hugh Deshawnack of Orica, for God's sakes. There's, there's no way I'm going to be, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, can't, yeah. I can't bring myself to call him Hugh. It's Mr. Deshawnack. It should be Monsieur Deshawnack, but I called him Mr. Deshawnack. Whenever I interviewed him, wherever, wherever we were, Mr. Deshawnack, uh, I, I mean, what do you say? What yes. do you say? And I said, I, I have no words, Mr. Deshona." And he said... It is racing or something, you know. uh, yeah. You know, um, it's racing. It's all part of the game. It's, you know, I forget yeah. what he said. Yeah. but He filled up. I filled up. I could barely speak. He could barely speak. It was probably the worst interview <laughs> ever because there was two grown men. I wasn't even with the team. I don't know what the hell I was doing, you know, vicariously feeling... You know the the, the sadness and the, and the and just feeling sick. I mean, I, yeah, I've raced, I've raced a lot. I've I've run race teams. I know the effort that goes in there. I've been, you know, been there, got the t-shirt. Sixteen hour days, seven days a week. These guys working hard, twenty four hours. They've got it in the bag. They're about to go out onto the pit wall when their car grinds to a halt. I mean, there's no words. You can't. There, no. there isn't any words. I mean, you know, anybody. I think it would have been cheap to actually, you know, how do you feel? I was never going to say that. It was, and so my, my, I suppose, primary nomination is the, uh, is the number two Porsche team at the 2016 Le Mans 24 Hours. Mark Lee, Roman Dumas and, and Neil Yanni they took the win um, after the, uh, the Toyota ground to a halt. Oh, and by the way, it, there's, a, there's a reason why it ground to a halt outside of its garage. Because the GPS on the car knew it was at its garage and cut the car. No. So it That's the right. car. Yeah. And it cut the car. And it literally, standing in the pit garage, the car stopped directly in front of its garage. Unfortunately, there was a pit wall in front of it uh, between the garage and the, and the car. It, it, and, and the car comes out of the Fort in, It realizes it's home and switches down. That's why yeah. where it did. He, that's, uh, see,
2: that's, uh, Joe, I, that's that's interesting uh, about the GPS thing because I heard I heard a totally different theory. Go on. Um, when he came around, he realized that it was Paul Tarsi's last ever <laughs> time to bring off. Uh-huh. and he forgot he thought the race was over and he stopped on the because we were up in the tribunes back then remember mm-hmm. and he he wanted to wave goodbye to the baron one one last time <laughs> uh, well, I, I understand, I, understand I, that's that's Jim, why he, yeah, I, I remember. How do you do this with a straight face come on help me out i,
1: I, I remember i remember Hindorf saying something like i remember Hindhoff saying he thinks it's he thinks it's finished. He thinks it's yes. the checkered flag. Yes. He thinks it. Yeah. He thinks the checkered flags come out. He stopped. He thinks yeah. it's over. He's yeah. one lap short. It no, is now. Bye, Baron. Bye, Baron.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. No, was, uh, yeah. Thank you, Joe. That was uh, that was very very well put, and, and thank you for that. I mean, I've had a couple of thoughts. Um, Mike Hawthorne. yes yeah. Very, yes, very lucky. much, very much. Um, you no, know, that he he won his championship in '58, um, having not had a stellar st- season. The uh, the thing that made all the difference was that he he spun in one of the races, and that was facing the wrong way. He drove down the pavement. Get this, the pavement uh, in. Um, in order to get back onto the track and was disqualified for driving on the in, in the wrong direction on the racetrack and it was Stirling moss in another team completely separate who actually went to the stewards and said no he was on the pavement he wasn't on the track uh, and that therefore you shouldn't disqualify him and they took it back and that was why hawthorne won the championship in 58 and not Stirling moss and if you want to talk about sportsmanship, which is probably an, an, another corridors of power, but uh, that says it all. The other person that I've kind of got, and, and I have the highest regard for him, but is Jensen Button. Jensen Button went into his World Championship year without a drive, mm-hmm. and it was and it was only because Ross Braun had done the deal with Honda to buy the team for a hundred pounds. And uh, that pretty much the only person it was left to hire was Jensen Button and Re- Rubens Barrichello, and that we know that he he won the championship that year through Ross Braun's genius. Uh, but say highest regard for Jensen, but maybe he was a bit, a bit lucky there. But I'll just throw those ones in in the pot. Mm-hmm. Uh, while while I'm thinking about this, I'm just going to run through some of the things that I've been doing over the course of the last few weeks. Uh, You you mentioned, Joe, the the Walter Hayes Trophy, which was on at Silverstone when you were doing your marathon Mm six-hour solo effort, which must have left you absolutely exhausted. Yeah, I I went to the Walter Hayes Trophy. Um, It's the first time I've been maybe ever and certainly for a very long time, and it's it was it was interesting. Uh, it's, it's it's very much a clubby, isn't it? It's, yeah. It's very much for the competitors. It's, yes. I was I was kind of reflecting on the the golden days of the Formula Ford Festival at Browns Hatch, which was very much a spectator event. But what a yeah. trophy! is is for the competitors and no that's no bad thing at all the The downer for me was that inevitably driving standards in Formula Ford can in some places get a bit robust let's say <laughs> and but that, uh, <laughs> that they were robust in in a couple of the semi finals, and a couple of the drivers had their uh, group positions, demoted because of it. And one of those drivers went to the stewards and appealed before the final. Now, I'm not privy to what happens in the steward's office. Very few people are. But all the cars were in the assembly area. They All the drivers were suited and booted and ready to go. And then they were all told to get out of their cars whilst the stewards debated about this appeal about the grid position Mm. now that was at five past three and that at 10 to four we still didn't have any cars on track ah i've heard i heard there was a ridiculous delay and it was actually five to four so it's 50 minutes between when the cars should have been coming out and when they did. Now, five to four, it was beginning to get dark. And mm-hmm. I think if they'd left it 10 minutes later, they mm-hmm. couldn't have run it because the, the marshals' posts would not have been able to see each other and therefore it's dangerous. So that that needs, needs to be put right. Um, other things I've been doing, I went to the Art of Motoring exhibition, which was put together by... Our old chum Andrew Marriott, and that was at the RAC Club in London's Pall Mall. Uh, that's a that's a place and a half. I'll tell you that it's it's huge. It is the original RAC Club um, in, as I say, one of the one of the poshest bits of London. If I tell you that two stories down there is a half size Olympic swimming pool and a gym and then you've got a restaurant you've got bars you've got a library you've got a television room you've got that famous rotunda where they always display cars and that uh, in one of the one of the rooms they had the art of motoring which was great one of the people who was displaying there was a man who i didn't know was an artist but uh, but who is Stefan johansson mm. who has developed quite a Quite a bit of amazing artwork, I have to say, and we we talked to him and um, he's going to come on and talk to us about his artwork um, at at a later date. So that was good. A couple of days later, I was back in Pall Mall, the RAC club, for the Motoring Book Awards and we'll be running through on our Facebook page, on the Historic Racing News Facebook page, all the reviews of all of the 2021 books so that you can get your christmas list together so look out for those and then we had the historic motoring awards which was a real treat uh because this is uh they have everything from the the best um the best restoration the best car club the best concours the best and all these these things and that I was, I was there with, with my, my very dear friend, Bill Warner, and Bill had been nominated for personal achievement and the Amelia Island Concours, which was his creation, had been nominated as the uh, Concours of the Year. So we sat there and I was convinced he was probably going to get both of them. So the, um, the Concours of the Year... Not Amelia Island. Oh dear, that's a that's a downer. Um and the pers- personal um personal contribution of the year, not Bill Warner. And I thought, oh God, this is gonna be dreadful. Poor chap's flown over from, from Florida for this mm. and he didn't mm. get either of them. At the end, of course, he got the Lifetime Achievement Award, which was absolutely brilliant. Complete surprise to him and to uh to Everybody in the audience, um, huge standing ovation for Bill. And you know, I know that we all know him and we all know what a, what a great guy he is and that it was, uh, it was a real treat to be able to share, share that with, with Bill. And then, courtesy of Mr. Jurd, um, I did the Porsche Club Motorsport Awards uh, a couple of nights later. Now, Paul, do you want to fill in the story as to why I did that?
3: Um. Yes, that's because we've literally, I think, less than thirty-six hours to go. Was when I started feeling very, very ill, and uh, was suddenly not a person fit to be seen in public or uh, mixing with large amounts of people. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, a big thank you and a, and a big hats off to you for stepping in really at the last minute. And uh, from what I hear, putting it off very nicely. Thank you.
0: Well, it was it was a it was a great privilege and great opportunity. The uh, the chief prize hander outer was Jonathan Palmer the chief executive of Motorsport vision and that he he came and did it. I have to tell you that probably most people know Jonathan flies himself between the circuits in his own helicopter. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you you all know that in the UK the registration numbers of aircraft always start with G and then it has to be four letters. and of course his hel- helicopter is G msvr msv racing nice. um but he uh, he landed his helicopter on his own in a field next to the car park next to the hotel which was not much bigger than the helicopter in the dark and then stepped out in his uh, in his dj which i thought was <laughs> incredibly cool <laughs> uh but he did that um he he handed out the prizes brilliantly i made the classic mistake and i I hesitate even to to say that in this esteemed company, but I asked him the first question uh, of the evening just before we were handing out the prizes, and he took the microphone from me.
2: Ooh!
0: (laughs) Now, as I say, in this company, I... I hesitate even to mention that, but he did. And, uh, tis, 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 tis. yes, absolutely. And
1: when people um, do that, though, Paul, in fairness, it then be there can then be uh, like five seconds of tug of war, yeah, until they get <laughs> until and, until they realize, no, no, mate, I'm I'm holding the mic to you to your face. It's like, oh, no, 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 it's it, you know, three to five seconds is usually the amount of time it takes
3: the historic racing news radio show. Look, going back
0: to corridors of power, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of put this, not to a vote, because that's much too much like democracy as far as I'm concerned. But what we will do is that with, with Joe, you know, we had Hamilton, Surtees and the Duma, Lieb, Jani trio. Jim, any thoughts on that? Well. I'm holding on I'm holding on to the microphone by the way.
1: <laughs> it's not a competition. I know it is, but it isn't really, you no, know, no,
2: no, really. no it isn't. I thought that your your Hamilton was a was I mean how many guys have, you know, Nikki Lauda with his Ferrari deal. Um, yeah. you know, I mean that's and that and sometimes it is done I mean uh Sebastian Vettel the other way around. You know, he he yeah. he, he leaves and you know, it's, it's, it's he's not in the best car anymore, and he goes right to the back of the grid. Um, my uh, uh, and before uh, twitter 's fear blows up out there, I am not a Lewis Hamilton hater by any stretch of the. <laughs> really? I, no, I'm not. I think <laughs> he, no, has, no, not. I think he not. has. I think he has immense talent. I think he has been lucky. I think he's in the best car, and therefore, I think he's a bit disingenuous with his. Oh, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. And, Oh, to get back in the race car after I've seen someone crash so hard. And, oh, it's just, I'm so, yeah, fricking snowflake. You're in the best car living living the life of Riley that 95% of the male population would give their left nut for. And, <laughs> you yeah. know, oh, I'm so put upon. I'm so put upon. No, Sorry. you're oh, an oh, immensely no. talented, wonderful race car driver. Live it.
0: Are we talking about Lewis Hamilton or is that Michael Jackson that you
2: were talking about? Well, it so- thank you. sounded
0: more like Michael Jackson. <laughs> um,
2: thank you. So, <laughs> m- moving on. Um, yeah, I think that um, having uh, 1999 uh, Le Mans, I, th- I think all of Joe's choices were, were very good. Um, and, and again, I'll, I'll say this was this was probably the hardest the hardest one to do um, in, 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 in all cases. Um, yeah. but I would I would say that of, of Joe's, I, I think probably the, the, the Porsche one is the, the, is, is the one because it was, um, the, you know, Lewis Hamilton was smart enough to make the right decision. Yes, he was lucky, but he was smart enough to make the right yeah. decision. Yeah. Um, the boys at Porsche had, they were, you know, they were looking at second place on the step and all of a sudden they weren't anymore and they acted like school children. It was, you know, it was yeah. interesting.
0: Okay. Paul, what, do you, uh, what are your thoughts on on both Joe's and Jim's uh, choices?
3: Well, I, I did like the Porsche story because it was how Porsche obviously suddenly became a sheldon free zone, wasn't it? They didn't, <laughs> you know, They didn't revel in the downfall of their biggest rival, which is class, which is class to be quite honest. Yeah. Um my my only comment was be yeah I, you know I think almost any of these are justified winners but I'm just not having Olivia Panis frankly because yeah. um I I tried to interview him once hmm. this was at the Formula Ford festival in phew, 2002 2003 and there was a PR thing going on where his BAR engineer was racing in the festival and it was oh he's you know he's engineered Olivia all season and now Olivia's going to engineer him and Olivia was there, and I walked up to the awning in the paddock on the Saturday, and you looked at and you and thought, you really don't want to be here, do you? You know, a cold November Brands Hatch was not what he'd planned post-season, let's put it that way. <laughs> but I was working I was working there as a journo for a new um, motorsport website. So I, I walked up to him and I said, uh, look, is it possible to do a quick interview? And, and no word of a lie, we're like six inches apart. He looks at me and goes, I am not here. <sighs> uh, okay, uh, well, can I catch you tomorrow morning? I am not here tomorrow. At which point I just tiptoed gently away. And thought, "Not it, frankly Wow.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you don't need that. That's, we're, we're, all, we're all doing a job, but uh, no, that's that's sad. Okay, gentlemen. Um, thank you for all that, um, Joe. Did I ask you your comments on the, this lot? Not yet. Uh, no, um,
1: the dunbreak one because I kind of felt. um I was at the event when it happened and I felt the shock and awe of um seeing it happen and and the way that you know in that situation uh, information isn't available instantly it it oozes out and you know a lot of it is rumor and speculation and until you actually see you know even though you saw him get into I think a medical car and then you're still wondering is he all right? You know, how, just how is he? How is he? And um, I think though, when, when we decided the subject of the, this week's Corridors of Power, uh, there were, there were, there's quite a few drivers who we can look at and think they were lucky to get away with that. I mean, Roman Grosjean last year mm. at Bahrain. I mean, when we, you know, the, the difference between these days and back in the day is that millions of people are sat watching it live, watching it happen, and that was sickening when you, you saw the, those pictures of the car engulfed in flames and stuff. And that that's why I kind of shied away from, um, and I'm not, not being critical of Paul Judd's choices here or choice of, of Peter Dunbar. Um, yeah, I, it's, um, you know, I, I think as ever, guys, as ever, it's really really hard to pick a specific one that you think yeah that's deserved of that's more deserved than the other it's impossible it's absolutely impossible to to, to define and decide which one of of all of our nine choices um, that you're going to choose paul uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad i do this Thanks, bit Joe.
0: i'm glad i right. do this bit and not the cho- not the choosing because i really couldn't well i'm, I'm going to step up to the plates then and uh, and talk about this because I think there's there's a few things, and uh, one of them is that some people, as has already been said, made clever decisions, made informed decisions. We know that that the Lewis Hamilton thing was absolutely down to Nicky Lauder, who pestered the life out of Hamilton mm. to come and visit the factory at Brackley for Mercedes and and do all those things so that was a conscious decision and luck does come into it because it was lucky that it was the right decision um similar kind of thing because he he engineered that he got the drive in the U.S. um Olivier Palace that's an interesting one and that, uh, that certainly sits there because that was luck. You know, he he wasn't oh. clever. He wasn't doing anything there. As was the uh, the Brabham Bernard um, and Wallace car at Petit Le Mans '99. Um, Al Holbert, yeah, that's that's reasonable. Chris Hodgetts. I mean, that that's mm. that sits there as kind of one of the very luckiest things because it is something we. I'm sure if we're all honest. We've all we've all dreamt about from time to
2: time, you know. Hey, roller,
0: come over here and get your helmet.
2: Um, but we we have a friend who uh, says he always has his license up to date, just for that reason. Yeah.
1: Well, all of my race driver friends, wherever they go, there there's a kit bag with a race suit and helmet and boots and gloves, always, always, always in the car. Yeah. It's yeah. Uh, it's it's you
0: know it, it goes without saying. But gentlemen, I think that with having given due consideration to it, the one that is completely luck without any input from the, the people concerned would have to be Joe's choice of Romain Dumas mark Leib and neil johnny because uh, that was absolute complete luck so well done joe yeah it's the first yeah. one i've won <laughs> well
1: done really
2: can i say can i say one more thing about joe's choice yeah because i actually I, I i agree with it and you know what put it over the top for me was it the yeah. freaking gps thought it was back in the garage yeah yeah, yeah. that's just that was that's that's still i mean that's just you know, yeah. How
0: that, that's, that's how is
2: that for for mm-hmm. Nakajima? I mean, come wow. on, yeah. yeah
0: <laughs> it's, it is ridiculous, but that's good. So, well done, Joe for for that. The uh, the luckiest race drivers, and that we'll be back in two weeks' time. But um, for now, boys, that's that's us done. Thank you very much indeed for all of your input. Don't forget that you can find our. Countdown to Christmas with all our Christmas book reviews on our Facebook page so you can start dropping those little hints about the things that you would like for Christmas so Mm -hmm. do do that, we'll be back soon Um, you can find us on Twitter at Hist Racing News you can find us on YouTube on HRN and uh, I'm sure you can find us somewhere else as well, oh yes historicracingnews.com but we'll be, we'll be back then to see you soon. So thank you to Joe Bradley, to Jim Roller, and to Paul Jurd. And as always, it's been great fun. I'm still Paul Tarsi, and as always, ladies and gentlemen, if you have been, thanks for listening.